0: Chapter 4. Mind Strategies for Avoiding the Now
1: Even if I completely accept that ultimately time is an illusion, what difference is that going to make in my life? I still have to live in a world that is completely dominated by time.
2: Intellectual agreement is just another belief and won't make much difference to your life. To realize this truth, you need to live it. When every cell of your body is so present that it feels vibrant with life, and when you can feel that life every moment as the joy of being, then it can be said that you are free of time.
1: But I still have to pay the bills tomorrow, and I'm still going to grow old and die, just like everybody else. So how can I ever say that I'm free of time?
2: Tomorrow's bills are not the problem. The dissolution of the physical body is not a problem. Loss of now is the problem, or rather, the core delusion that turns a mere situation, event or emotion into a personal problem and into suffering. Loss of now is loss of being. To be free of time is to be free of the psychological need of past for your identity and future for your fulfillment. It represents the most profound transformation of consciousness that you can imagine. In some rare cases, this shift in consciousness happens dramatically and radically, once and for all. When it does, it usually comes about through total surrender in the midst of intense suffering. Most people, however, have to work at it. When you've had your first few glimpses of the timeless state of consciousness, you begin to move back and forth between the dimensions of time and presence. First you become aware of just how rarely your attention is truly in the now. But to know that you are not present is a great success. That knowing is presence, even if initially it only lasts for a couple of seconds of clock time before it is lost again. Then, with increasing frequency, you choose to have the focus of your consciousness in the present moment rather than in the past or future. And whenever you realize that you had lost the now, you are able to stay in it not just for a couple of seconds, but for longer periods as perceived from the external perspective of clock time. So before you are firmly established in the state of presence, which is to say, before you are fully conscious, you shift back and forth for a while between consciousness and unconsciousness, between the state of presence and the state of mind identification. You lose the now and you return to it again and again. Eventually, presence becomes your predominant state. For most people, presence is experienced either never at all or only accidentally and briefly on rare occasions without being recognized for what it is. Most humans alternate not between consciousness and unconsciousness but only between different levels of unconsciousness.
1: What do you mean by different levels of unconsciousness?
2: As you probably know, in sleep you constantly move between the phases of dreamless sleep and the dream state. Similarly, in wakefulness, most people only shift between ordinary unconsciousness and deep unconsciousness. What I call ordinary unconsciousness means being identified with your thought processes and emotions, your reactions, Desires and aversions. It is most people's normal state. In that state, you are run by the egoic mind and you are unaware of being. It is a state not of acute pain or unhappiness, but of an almost continuous low level of unease, discontent, boredom, or nervousness, a kind of background static. You may not realize this because it is so much part of normal living just as you are not aware of a continuous low background noise, such as the hum of an air conditioner, until it stops. When it suddenly does stop, there's a sense of relief. Many people use alcohol, drugs, sex, food, work, television, or even shopping as anesthetics in an unconscious attempt to remove the basic unease. When this happens, An activity that might be very enjoyable if used in moderation becomes imbued with a compulsive or addictive quality, and all that is ever achieved through it is extremely short-lived symptom relief. The unease of ordinary unconsciousness turns into the pain of deep unconsciousness, a state of more acute and more obvious suffering or unhappiness. When things go wrong, when the ego is threatened, or there is a major challenge, threat or loss, real or imagined, in your life situation or conflict in a relationship. It is an intensified version of ordinary unconsciousness, different from it, not in kind, but in degree. In ordinary unconsciousness, habitual resistance to or denial of what is creates the unease and discontent that most people accept as normal living. When this resistance becomes intensified through some challenge or threat to the ego it brings up intense negativity such as anger acute fear aggression depression and so on deep unconsciousness often means that the pain body has been triggered and that you have become identified with it physical violence would be impossible without deep unconsciousness it can also occur easily whenever and wherever a crowd of people or even an entire nation generates a negative collective energy field. The best indicator of your level of consciousness is how you deal with life's challenges when they come. Through those challenges, an already unconscious person tends to become more deeply unconscious and a conscious person more intensely conscious. You can use a challenge to awaken you or you can allow it to pull you into even deeper sleep. The dream of ordinary unconsciousness then turns into a nightmare. If you cannot be present even in normal circumstances, such as when you are sitting alone in a room, walking in the woods, or listening to someone, then you certainly won't be able to stay conscious when something goes wrong, or you are faced with difficult people or situations, with loss or the threat of loss you will be taken over by a reaction, which ultimately is always some form of fear, and pulled into deep unconsciousness. Those challenges are your tests. Only the way in which you deal with them will show you and others where you are at as far as your state of consciousness is concerned, not how long you can sit with your eyes closed or what visions you see. So it is essential to bring more consciousness into your life in ordinary situations when everything is going relatively smoothly. In this way, you grow in presence power. It generates an energy field in you and around you of a high vibrational frequency. No unconsciousness, no negativity, no discord or violence can enter that field and survive, just as darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. When you learn to be the witness of your thoughts and emotions, which is an essential part of being present, you may be surprised when you first become aware of the background static of ordinary unconsciousness and realize how rarely, if ever, you are truly at ease within yourself. On the level of your thinking, you will find a great deal of resistance in the form of judgment, discontent and mental projection away from the now. On the emotional level, there will be an undercurrent of unease, tension, boredom, or nervousness. Both are aspects of the mind in its habitual resistance mode. Carl Jung tells in one of his books of a conversation he had with a Native American chief, who pointed out to him that in his perception, most white people have tense faces, staring eyes, and a cruel demeanor. He said, They are always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They are always uneasy and restless. We don't know what they want. We think they are mad. The undercurrent of constant unease started long before the rise of Western industrial civilization, of course. But in Western civilization, which now covers almost the entire globe, including most of the East, it manifests in an unprecedentedly acute form. It was already there at the time of Jesus, and it was there 600 years before that, at the time of Buddha, and long before that. Why are you always anxious? Jesus asked his disciples. Can anxious thought add a single day to your life? And the Buddha taught that the root of suffering is to be found in our constant wanting and craving. Resistance to the now as a collective dysfunction is intrinsically connected to loss of awareness of being and forms the basis of our dehumanized industrial civilization. Freud, by the way, also recognized the existence of this undercurrent of unease and wrote about it in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. But he did not recognize the true root of the unease and failed to realize that freedom from it is possible. This collective dysfunction has created a very unhappy and extraordinarily violent civilization that has become a threat not only to itself, but also to all life on the planet.
1: So how can we be free of this affliction?
2: Make it conscious. Observe the many ways in which unease, discontent and tension arise within you through unnecessary judgment Resistance to what is and denial of the now. Anything unconscious dissolves when you shine the light of consciousness on it. Once you know how to dissolve ordinary unconsciousness, the light of your presence will shine brightly, and it will be much easier to deal with deep unconsciousness whenever you feel its gravitational pull. However, ordinary unconsciousness may not be easy to detect initially because it is so normal. Make it a habit to monitor your mental-emotional state through self-observation. Am I at ease at this moment? Is a good question to ask yourself frequently. Or you can ask, what's going on inside me at this moment? Be at least as interested in what goes on inside you as what happens outside. If you get the inside right, the outside will fall into place. Primary reality is within secondary reality without. But don't answer these questions immediately. Direct your attention inward. Have a look inside yourself. What kind of thoughts is your mind producing? What do you feel? Direct your attention into the body. Is there any tension? Once you detect that there's a low level of unease, the background static, see in what way you're avoiding resisting or denying life by denying the now. There are many ways in which people unconsciously resist the present moment. I will give you a few examples. With practice, your powers of self-observation, of monitoring your inner state, will become sharpened. Do you resent doing what you are doing? It may be your job, or you may have agreed to do something and are doing it but part of you resents and resists it. Are you carrying unspoken resentment towards a person close to you? Do you realize that the energy you thus emanate is so harmful in its effects that you are in fact contaminating yourself as well as those around you? Have a good look inside. Is there even the slightest trace of resentment, unwillingness? If there is, Observe it on both the mental and the emotional levels. What thoughts is your mind creating around this situation? Then look at the emotion, which is the body's reaction to those thoughts. Feel the emotion. Does it feel pleasant or unpleasant? Is it an energy that you would actually choose to have inside you? Do you have a choice? Maybe you are being taken advantage of, Maybe the activity you are engaged in is tedious. Maybe someone close to you is dishonest, irritating or unconscious. But all this is irrelevant. Whether your thoughts and emotions about this situation are justified or not makes no difference. The fact is that you are resisting what is. You are making the present moment into an enemy. You are creating unhappiness, conflict between the inner and the outer. Your unhappiness is polluting not only your own inner being and those around you, but also the collective human psyche of which you are an inseparable part. The pollution of the planet is only an outward reflection of an inner psychic pollution, millions of unconscious individuals not taking responsibility for their inner space. Either stop doing what you are doing Speak to the person concerned and express fully what you feel or drop the negativity that your mind has created around the situation and that serves no purpose whatsoever except to strengthen a false sense of self. Recognizing its futility is important. Negativity is never the optimum way of dealing with any situation. In fact, in most cases it keeps you stuck in it, blocking real change. Anything that is done with negative energy will become contaminated by it and, in time, give rise to more pain, more unhappiness. Furthermore, any negative inner state is contagious. Unhappiness spreads more easily than a physical disease. Through the law of resonance, it triggers and feeds latent negativity in others, unless they are immune, that is, highly conscious. Are you polluting the world or cleaning up the mess? You are responsible for your inner space. Nobody else is, just as you are responsible for the planet. As within, so without. If humans clear inner pollution, then they will also cease to create outer pollution.
1: How can we drop negativity as you suggest?
2: By dropping it. How do you drop a piece of hot coal that you are holding in your hand? How do you drop some heavy and useless baggage that you are carrying? By recognizing that you don't want to suffer the pain or carry the burden anymore and then letting go of it. Deep unconsciousness, such as the pain body, or other deep pain, such as the loss of a loved one, usually needs to be transmuted through acceptance combined with the light of your presence your sustained attention. Many patterns in ordinary unconsciousness, on the other hand, can simply be dropped once you know that you don't want them and don't need them anymore, once you realize that you have a choice, that you're not just a bundle of conditioned reflexes. All this implies that you're able to access the power of now. Without it, you have no choice.
1: If you call some emotions negative, aren't you creating a mental polarity of good and bad, as you explained earlier?
2: No. The polarity was created at an earlier stage when your mind judged the present moment as bad. This judgment then created the negative emotion.
1: But if you call some emotions negative, aren't you really saying that they shouldn't be there? That it's not okay to have those emotions? My understanding is that we should give ourselves permission to have whatever feelings come up rather than judge them as bad or say that we shouldn't have them. It's okay to feel resentful. It's okay to be angry, irritated, moody, or whatever. Otherwise, we get into repression, inner conflict, or denial. Everything is okay as it is.
2: Of course, once a mind pattern, an emotion, or a reaction is there, accept it you are not conscious enough to have a choice in the matter. That's not a judgment, just a fact. If you had a choice or realized that you do have a choice, would you choose suffering or joy, ease or unease, peace or conflict? Would you choose a thought or feeling that cuts you off from your natural state of well-being, the joy of life within? Any such feeling I call negative. Which simply means bad. Not in the sense that you shouldn't have done that, but just plain, factual bad, like feeling sick in the stomach. How is it possible that humans killed in excess of 100 million fellow humans in the 20th century alone? Humans inflicting pain of such magnitude on one another is beyond anything you can imagine. And that's not taking into account the mental, emotional, and physical violence the torture, pain and cruelty they continue to inflict on each other as well as on other sentient beings on a daily basis. Do they act in this way because they are in touch with their natural state, the joy of life within? Of course not. Only people who are in a deeply negative state, who feel very bad indeed, would create such a reality as a reflection of how they feel. Now they are engaged in destroying nature and the planet that sustains them. Unbelievable, but true. Humans are a dangerously insane and very sick species. That's not a judgment. It's a fact. It is also a fact that the sanity is there underneath the madness. Healing and redemption are available right now. Coming back specifically to what you said, it is certainly true that When you accept your resentment, moodiness, anger and so on, you are no longer forced to act them out blindly and you are less likely to project them onto others. But I wonder if you are not deceiving yourself. When you have been practicing acceptance for a while, as you have, there comes a point when you need to go on to the next stage where those negative emotions are not created anymore. If you don't, your acceptance, just becomes a mental label that allows your ego to continue to indulge in unhappiness and so strengthen its sense of separation from other people, your surroundings, your here and now, as you know, separation is the basis for the ego's sense of identity. True acceptance would transmute those feelings at once, and if you really knew deeply that everything is okay, as you put it, and which of course is true then would you have those negative feelings in the first place? Without judgment, without resistance to what is, they would not arise. You have an idea in your mind that everything is okay, but deep down you don't really believe it, and so the old mental-emotional patterns of resistance are still in place. That's what makes you feel bad.
1: That's okay too.
2: Are you defending your right to be unconscious, your right to suffer? Don't worry, nobody is going to take that away from you. Once you realize that a certain kind of food makes you sick, would you carry on eating that food and keep asserting that it is okay to be sick?
1: Can you give me some more examples of ordinary unconsciousness?
2: See if you can catch yourself complaining, in either speech or thought, About a situation you find yourself in, what other people do or say, your surroundings, your life situation, even the weather. To complain is always non-acceptance of what is. It invariably carries an unconscious negative charge. When you complain, you make yourself into a victim. When you speak out, you are in your power. So change the situation by taking action or by speaking out if necessary or possible, leave the situation, or accept it. All else is madness. Ordinary unconsciousness is always linked in some way with denial of the now. The now, of course, also implies the here. Are you resisting your here and now? Some people would always rather be somewhere else. Their here is never good enough. Through self-observation, find out if that is the case in your life. Wherever you are, be there totally. If you find your here and now intolerable and it makes you unhappy, you have three options. Remove yourself from the situation, change it, or accept it totally. If you want to take responsibility for your life, you must choose one of those three options. And you must choose now, then accept the consequences. No excuses, no negativity, no psychic pollution. Keep your inner space clear. If you take any action, leaving or changing your situation, drop the negativity first, if at all possible. Action arising out of insight into what is required is more effective Than action arising out of negativity. Any action is often better than no action, especially if you've been stuck in an unhappy situation for a long time. If it is a mistake, at least you learn something, in which case it's no longer a mistake. If you remain stuck, you learn nothing. Is fear preventing you from taking action? Acknowledge the fear, watch it, take your attention into it be fully present with it. Doing so cuts the link between the fear and your thinking. Don't let the fear rise up into your mind. Use the power of the now. Fear cannot prevail against it. If there is truly nothing that you can do to change your here and now, and you can't remove yourself from the situation, then accept your here and now totally by dropping all inner resistance. The false unhappy self that laughs feeling miserable, resentful or sorry for itself can then no longer survive. This is called surrender. Surrender is not weakness. There's great strength in it. Only a surrendered person has spiritual power. Through surrender, you will be free internally of the situation. You may then find that the situation changes without any effort on your part. In any case, you're free. Or is there something that you should be doing but are not doing it? Get up and do it now. Alternatively, completely accept your inactivity, laziness or passivity at this moment, if that is your choice. Go into it fully. Enjoy it. Be as lazy or inactive as you can. If you go into it fully and consciously, you will soon come out of it. Or maybe you won't. Either way, there's no inner conflict, no resistance, no negativity. Are you stressed? Are you so busy getting to the future that the present is reduced to a means of getting there? Stress is caused by being here But wanting to be there, or being in the present but wanting to be in the future. It's a split that tears you apart inside. To create and live with such an inner split is insane. The fact that everyone else is doing it doesn't make it any less insane. If you have to, you can move fast, work fast, or even run without projecting yourself into the future and without resisting the present. As you move, work, run, do it totally. Enjoy the flow of energy, the high energy of that moment. Now you're no longer stressed, no longer splitting yourself in two. Just moving, running, working and enjoying it. Or you can drop the whole thing and sit on a park bench. But when you do, watch your mind. It may say, you should be working, you're wasting time. Observe the mind. Smile at it. Does the past take up a great deal of your attention? Do you frequently talk and think about it, either positively or negatively? The great things that you have achieved, your adventures or experiences, or your victim story and the dreadful things that were done to you or maybe what you did to someone else? Are your thought processes creating guilt pride, resentment, anger, regret or self-pity? Then you are not only reinforcing a false sense of self, but are also helping to accelerate your body's aging process by creating an accumulation of past in your psyche. Verify this for yourself by observing those around you who have a strong tendency to hold on to the past. Die to the past every moment. You don't need it. Only refer to it when it is absolutely relevant to the present. Feel the power of this moment and the fullness of being. Feel your presence. Are you worried? Do you have many what-if thoughts? You are identified with your mind, which is projecting itself into an imaginary future situation and creating fear. There is no way that you can cope with such a situation because it doesn't exist. It's a mental phantom. You can stop this health and life corroding insanity simply by acknowledging the present moment. Become aware of your breathing. Feel the air flowing in and out of your body. Feel your inner energy field. All that you ever have to deal with, cope with, in real life, as opposed to imaginary mind projections, is this moment. Ask yourself what problem you have right now, not next year, tomorrow, or five minutes from now. What is wrong with this moment? You can always cope with the now but you can never cope with the future, nor do you have to. The answer, the strength, the right action or the resource will be there when you need it, not before, not after. One day I'll make it. Is your goal taking up so much of your attention that you reduce the present moment to a means to an end? Is it taking the joy out of your doing? Are you waiting to start living? If you develop such a mind pattern, no matter what you achieve or get, the present will never be good enough. The future will always seem better. A perfect recipe for permanent dissatisfaction and non-fulfillment, don't you agree? Are you a habitual waiter? How much of your life do you spend waiting? What I call small-scale waiting is waiting in line at the post office, in a traffic jam, at the airport, or waiting for someone to arrive, to finish work, and so on. Large-scale waiting is waiting for the next vacation, for a better job, for the children to grow up, for a truly meaningful relationship, for success, to make money, to be important, to become enlightened. It is not uncommon for people to spend their whole life waiting to start living. Waiting is a state of mind. Basically, it means that you want the future. You don't want the present. You don't want what you've got, and you want what you haven't got. With every kind of waiting, you unconsciously create inner conflict between your here and now, where you don't want to be and the projected future, where you want to be. This greatly reduces the quality of your life by making you lose the present. There is nothing wrong with striving to improve your life situation. You can improve your life situation, but you cannot improve your life. Life is primary. Life is your deepest inner being. It is already whole, complete, perfect. Your life situation consists of your circumstances and your experiences. There's nothing wrong with setting goals and striving to achieve things. The mistake lies in using it as a substitute for the feeling of life, for being. The only point of access for that is the now. You are then like an architect who pays no attention to the foundation of a building, but spends a lot of time working on the superstructure. For example, many people are waiting for prosperity. It cannot come in the future. When you honor, acknowledge and fully accept your present reality, where you are, who you are, what you're doing right now, when you fully accept what you have got, you're grateful for what you've got, grateful for what is, grateful for being. Gratitude for the present moment and the fullness of life now is true prosperity. It cannot come in the future. Then in time, that prosperity manifests for you in various ways. If you're dissatisfied with what you've got or even frustrated or angry about your present lack, that may motivate you to become rich. But even if you do make millions, you will continue to experience the inner condition of lack. And deep down, you will continue to feel unfulfilled. You may have many exciting experiences that money can buy, but they will come and go and always leave you with an empty feeling and the need for further physical or psychological gratification. You won't abide in being and so feel the fullness of life now that alone is true prosperity. So, give up waiting as a state of mind. When you catch yourself slipping into waiting, snap out of it. Come into the present moment. Just be and enjoy being. If you are present, there's never any need for you to wait for anything. So, next time somebody says, Sorry to have kept you waiting, you can reply, That's all right, I wasn't waiting. I was just standing here enjoying myself. Enjoy in myself. These are just a few of the habitual mind strategies for denying the present moment that are part of ordinary unconsciousness. They are easy to overlook because they are so much a part of normal living. The background static of perpetual discontent. But the more you practice monitoring your inner mental-emotional state, the easier it will be to know when you've been trapped in past or future, which is to say, unconscious, and to awaken out of the dream of time into the present. But beware. The false unhappy self, based on mind identification, lives on time. It knows that the present moment is its own death, and so it feels very threatened by it. It will do all it can to take you out of it. It will try to keep you trapped in time.
1: I can see the truth of what you are saying, but I still think that we must have purpose in our life's journey. Otherwise, we just drift. And purpose means future, doesn't it? How do we reconcile that with living in the present?
2: When you are on a journey, it is certainly helpful to know where you are going or at least the general direction in which you are moving. But don't forget, the only thing that is ultimately real about your journey is the step that you are taking at this moment. That's all there ever is. Your life's journey has an outer purpose and an inner purpose. The outer purpose is to arrive at your goal or destination, to accomplish what you set out to do, to achieve this or that which of course implies future. But if your destination or the steps you are going to take in the future take up so much of your attention that they become more important to you than the step you are taking now, then you completely miss the journey's inner purpose, which has nothing to do with where you are going or what you are doing, but everything to do with how. It has nothing to do with future, but everything to do with the quality of your consciousness at this moment. The outer purpose belongs to the horizontal dimension of space and time. The inner purpose concerns a deepening of your being in the vertical dimension of the timeless now. Your outer journey may contain a million steps. Your inner journey only has one, the step you are taking right now. As you become more deeply aware of this one step, you realize that it already contains within itself all the other steps as well as the destination. This one step then becomes transformed into an expression of perfection, an act of great beauty and quality. It will have taken you into being, and the light of being will shine through it. This is both the purpose and the fulfillment of your inner journey, the journey into yourself.
1: Does it matter whether we achieve our outer purpose, whether we succeed or fail in the world?
2: It will matter to you as long as you haven't realized your inner purpose. After that, The outer purpose is just a game that you may continue to play simply because you enjoy it. It is also possible to fail completely in your outer purpose and at the same time totally succeed in your inner purpose. Or the other way around, which is actually more common. Outer riches and inner poverty. Or to gain the world and lose your soul, as Jesus puts it. Ultimately, of course, every outer purpose is doomed to fail sooner or later simply because it is subject to the law of impermanence of all things. The sooner you realize that your outer purpose cannot give you lasting fulfillment, the better. When you have seen the limitations of your outer purpose, you give up your unrealistic expectation that it should make you happy and you make it subservient to your inner purpose.
1: You mentioned that thinking or talking about the past unnecessarily is one of the ways in which we avoid the present. But apart from the past that we remember, and perhaps identify with, isn't there another level of past within us that is much more deep-seated? I'm talking about the unconscious past that conditions our lives, especially through early childhood experiences perhaps even past life experiences. And then there is our cultural conditioning, which has to do with where we live geographically and the historic time period in which we live. All these things determine how we see the world, how we react, what we think, what kind of relationships we have, how we live our lives. How could we ever become conscious of all that or get rid of it? How long would that take? And even if we did, what would there be left?
2: What is left when illusion ends? There is no need to investigate the unconscious past in you except as it manifests at this moment as a thought, an emotion, a desire, a reaction, or an external event that happens to you. Whatever you need to know about the unconscious past in you, the challenges of the present will bring it out. If you delve into the past, it will become a bottomless pit. There is always more. You may think that you need more time to understand the past or become free of it. In other words, that the future will eventually free you of the past. This is a delusion. Only the present can free you of the past. More time cannot free you of time. Access the power of now. That is the key.
1: What is the power of now?
2: None other than the power of your presence, your consciousness liberated from thought forms. So, deal with the past on the level of the present. The more attention you give to the past, the more you energize it and the more likely you are to make a self out of it. Don't misunderstand. Attention is essential, but not to the past as past. Give attention to the present. Give attention to your behavior, to your reactions, moods, thoughts, emotions, fears and desires as they occur in the present. There's the past in you. If you can be present enough to watch all those things, not critically or analytically but non-judgmentally, then you are dealing with the past and dissolving it through the power of your presence. You cannot find yourself by going into the past. You find yourself by coming into the present.
1: Isn't it helpful to understand the past and so understand why we do certain things, react in certain ways, or why we unconsciously create our particular kind of drama, patterns in relationships and so on?
2: As you become more conscious of your present reality, You may suddenly get certain insights as to why your conditioning functions in those particular ways. For example, why your relationships follow certain patterns. And you may remember things that happened in the past or see them more clearly. That is fine and can be helpful. But it is not essential. What is essential is your conscious presence. That dissolves the past. That is the transformative agent. So don't seek to understand the past, but be as present as you can. The past cannot survive in your presence. It can only survive in your absence.
1: Chapter 5 The State of Presence
0: You keep talking about the state of presence as the key. I think I understand it intellectually, but I don't know if I have ever truly experienced it. I wonder, is it what I think it is, or is it something entirely different? It's not what you think it is.
2: You can't think about presence, and the mind can't understand it. Understanding presence is being present. Try a little experiment. Close your eyes and say to yourself, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. Then become very alert and wait for the next thought. Be like a cat watching a mouse hole. What thought is going to come out of the mouse hole? Try it now.
0: Well, I had to wait for quite a long time before a thought came in. Exactly.
2: As long as you're in a state of intense presence, you're free of thought. You're still, yet highly alert. The instant your conscious attention sinks below a certain level, thought rushes in. The mental noise returns. The stillness is lost. You're back in time. To test their degree of presence, some Zen masters have been known to creep up on their students from behind and suddenly hit them with a stick. Quite a shock. If the student had been fully present and in a state of alertness, if he had kept his loin girded and his lamp burning, which is one of the analogies that Jesus uses for presence, he would have noticed the master coming up from behind and stopped him or stepped aside. But if he were hit, That would mean he was immersed in thought, which is to say absent, unconscious. To stay present in everyday life, it helps to be deeply rooted within yourself. Otherwise, the mind which has incredible momentum will drag you along like a wild river.
0: What do you mean by rooted within yourself? It means to inhabit your body fully.
2: To always have some of your attention in the inner energy field of your body. To feel the body from within, so to speak. Body awareness keeps you present. It anchors you in the now. In a sense, the state of presence could be compared to waiting. Jesus used the analogy of waiting in some of his parables. This is not the usual bored or restless kind of waiting that is a denial of the present and that I spoke about already. It is not a waiting in which your attention is focused on some point in the future and the present is perceived as an undesirable obstacle that prevents you from having what you want. There is a qualitatively different kind of waiting, one that requires your total alertness. Something could happen at any moment and if you are not absolutely awake, absolutely still, you will miss it. This is the kind of waiting Jesus talks about. In that state, all your attention is in the now. There's none left for daydreaming, thinking, remembering, anticipating. There's no tension in it, no fear, just alert presence. You are present with your whole being, with every cell of your body. In that state, the you that has a past and a future, the personality if you like, is hardly there anymore. And yet nothing of value is lost. You are still essentially yourself. In fact, you are more fully yourself than you ever were before. Or rather, it is only now that you are truly yourself. Be like a servant waiting for the return of the master, says Jesus. The servant does not know at what hour the master is going to come. So he stays awake, alert poised, still, lest he miss the master's arrival. In another parable, Jesus speaks of the five careless, unconscious women who do not have enough oil, consciousness, to keep their lamps burning, stay present, and so miss the bridegroom, the now, and don't get to the wedding feast, enlightenment. These five stand in contrast to the five wise women who have enough oil, that is, stay conscious. Even the men who wrote the Gospels did not understand the meaning of these parables, so the first misinterpretations and distortions crept in as they were written down. With subsequent erroneous interpretations, the real meaning was completely lost. These are parables not about the end of the world, but about the end of psychological time. They point to the transcendence of the egoic mind and the possibility of living in an entirely new state of consciousness.
0: What you have just described is something that I occasionally experience for brief moments when I am alone and surrounded by nature.
2: Yes. Zen masters use the word satori, to describe a flash of insight, a moment of no mind and total presence. Although Satori is not a lasting transformation, be grateful when it comes, for it gives you a taste of enlightenment. You may indeed have experienced it many times without knowing what it is and realizing its importance. Presence is needed to become aware of the beauty, the majesty, the sacredness of nature, Have you ever gazed up into the infinity of space on a clear night, awestruck by the absolute stillness and inconceivable vastness of it? Have you listened, truly listened, to the sound of a mountain stream in the forest or the song of a blackbird at dusk on a quiet summer evening? To become aware of such things, the mind needs to be still. You have to put down for a moment your personal baggage of problems, of past and future, as well as all your knowledge. Otherwise, you will see but not see, hear but not hear. Your total presence is required. Beyond the beauty of the external forms, there is more here. Something that cannot be named. Something ineffable. Some deep inner holy essence. Whenever and wherever there is beauty, this inner essence shines through somehow. It only reveals itself to you when you are present. Could it be that this nameless essence and your presence are one and the same? Would it be there without your presence? Go deeply into it. Find out for yourself. When you experienced those moments of presence, you likely didn't realize that you were briefly in a state of no mind. This is because the gap between that state and the influx of thought was too narrow. Your satori may only have lasted for a few seconds before the mind came in, but it was there. Otherwise, you would not have experienced the beauty. Mind can neither recognize nor create beauty. Only for a few seconds, while you were completely present, was that beauty or that sacredness there. Because of the narrowness of that gap and a lack of vigilance and alertness on your part, you were probably unable to see the fundamental difference between the perception, the thoughtless awareness of beauty, and the naming and interpreting of it as thought the time gap was so small that it seemed to be a single process. The truth is, however, that the moment thought came in, all you had was a memory of it. The wider the time gap between perception and thought, the more depth there is to you as a human being, which is to say, the more conscious you are. Many people are so imprisoned in their minds that the beauty of nature does not really exist for them. They might say, what a pretty flower, but that's just a mechanical mental labelling. Because they are not still, not present, they don't truly see the flower, don't feel its essence, its holiness, just as they don't know themselves, don't feel their own essence, their own holiness. Because we live in such a mind-dominated culture, most modern art, architecture, music and literature are devoid of beauty of inner essence, with very few exceptions. The reason is that the people who create those things cannot even for a moment free themselves from their mind. So they're never in touch with that place within where true creativity and beauty arise. The mind left to itself creates monstrosities and not only in art galleries. Look at our urban landscapes and industrial wastelands.
0: No civilization has ever produced so much ugliness. Is presence the same as being?
2: When you become conscious of being, what is really happening is that being becomes conscious of itself. When being becomes conscious of itself, that's presence. Since being, consciousness and life are synonymous, we could say that presence means consciousness becoming conscious of itself or life-attaining self-consciousness. But don't get attached to the words and don't make an effort to understand this. There's nothing that you need to understand before you can become present.
0: I do understand what you just said, but it seems to imply that being, the ultimate transcendental reality, is not yet complete, that it is undergoing a process of development. Does God need time for personal growth? Yes, but only seen from the limited perspective
2: of the manifested universe. In the Bible God declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and I am the Living One. In the timeless realm where God dwells, which is also your home, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, are one, and the essence of everything that ever has been and ever will be is eternally present in an unmanifested state of oneness and perfection, totally beyond anything the human mind can ever imagine or comprehend. In our world of seemingly separate forms, however, timeless perfection is an inconceivable concept. Here even consciousness, which is the light emanating from the eternal source, seems to be subject to a process of development, but this is due to our limited perception. It is not so in absolute terms. Nevertheless, let me continue to speak for a moment about the evolution of consciousness in this world. Everything that exists has being, has God essence, has some degree of consciousness. Even a stone has rudimentary consciousness, otherwise it would not be, and its atoms and molecules would disperse. Everything is alive, the sun, the earth, plants, animals, humans, All are expressions of consciousness in varying degrees, consciousness manifesting as form. The world arises when consciousness takes on shapes and forms, thought forms and material forms. Look at the millions of life-forms on this planet alone, in the sea, on land, in the air, and then each life-form is replicated millions of times. To what end? Is someone or something playing a game, a game with form? This is what the ancient seers of India asked themselves. They saw the world as Leela, a kind of divine game that God is playing. The individual life forms are obviously not very important in this game. In the sea, most life forms don't survive for more than a few minutes after being born. The human form turns to dust pretty quickly too and when it is gone, it is as if it had never been. Is that tragic or cruel? Only if you create a separate identity for each form, if you forget that its consciousness is God-essence expressing itself in form. But you don't truly know that until you realize your own God-essence as pure consciousness. If a fish is born in your aquarium and you call it John, write out a birth certificate, tell him about his family history, and two minutes later he gets eaten by another fish. That's tragic. But it's only tragic because you projected a separate self where there was none. You got hold of a fraction of a dynamic process, a molecular dance, and made a separate entity out of it. Consciousness takes on the disguise of forms until they reach such complexity That it completely loses itself in them. In present day humans, consciousness is completely identified with its disguise. It only knows itself as form and therefore lives in fear of the annihilation of its physical or psychological form. This is the egoic mind, and this is where considerable dysfunction sets in. It now looks as if something had gone very wrong somewhere along the line of evolution. But even this is part of leela, the divine game. Finally, the pressure of suffering created by this apparent dysfunction forces consciousness to disidentify from form and awakens it from its dream of form. It regains self-consciousness, but it is at a far deeper level than when it lost it. This process is explained by Jesus in his parable of the lost son, who leaves his father's home, squanders his wealth, becomes destitute, and is then forced by his suffering to return home. When he does, his father loves him more than before. The son's state is the same as it was before, yet not the same. It has an added dimension of depth. The parable describes a journey from unconscious perfection through apparent imperfection and evil to conscious perfection. Can you now see the deeper and wider significance of becoming present as the watcher of your mind? Whenever you watch the mind, you withdraw consciousness from mind forms, which then becomes what we call the watcher or the witness. Consequently, the watcher, pure consciousness beyond form, becomes stronger and the mental formations become weaker. When we talk about watching the mind we are personalizing an event that is truly of cosmic significance. Through you consciousness is awakening out of its dream of identification with form and withdrawing from form. This foreshadows but is already part of an event that is probably still in the distant future as far as chronological time is concerned. The event is called the end of the world. When consciousness frees itself from its identification with physical and mental forms, it becomes what we may call pure or enlightened consciousness, or presence. This has already happened in a few individuals, and it seems destined to happen soon on a much larger scale, although there's no absolute guarantee that it will happen. Most humans are still in the grip of the egoic mode of consciousness, identified with their mind and run by their mind. If they do not free themselves from their mind in time, they will be destroyed by it. They will experience increasing confusion, conflict, violence, illness, despair, madness. Egoic mind has become like a sinking ship. If you don't get off, you will go down with it. The collective egoic mind is the most dangerously insane and destructive entity ever to inhabit this planet. What do you think will happen on this planet if human consciousness remains unchanged? Already for most humans, the only respite they find from their own minds is to occasionally revert to a level of consciousness below thought. Everyone does that every night during sleep but this also happens to some extent through sex, alcohol and other drugs that suppress excessive mind activity. If it weren't for alcohol, tranquilizers, antidepressants, as well as the illegal drugs, which are all consumed in vast quantities, the insanity of the human mind would become even more glaringly obvious than it is already. I believe that, if deprived of their drugs, a large part of the population would become a danger to themselves and others. These drugs, of course, simply keep you stuck in dysfunction. Their widespread use only delays the breakdown of the old mind structures and the emergence of higher consciousness. While individual users may get some relief from the daily torture inflicted on them by their minds, they are prevented from generating enough conscious presence to rise above thought and so find true liberation. Falling back to a level of consciousness below mind, which is the pre-thinking level of our distant ancestors and of animals and plants, is not an option for us. There's no way back. If the human race is to survive, it will have to go on to the next stage. Consciousness is evolving throughout the universe in billions of forms. So even if we didn't make it, this wouldn't matter on a cosmic scale. No gain in consciousness is ever lost, so it would simply express itself through some other form. But the very fact that I am speaking here and you are listening to this is a clear sign that the new consciousness is gaining a foothold on the planet. There's nothing personal in this. I am not teaching you. You are consciousness and you are listening to yourself. There's an Eastern saying, the teacher and the taught together create the teaching. In any case, the words in themselves are not important. They are not the truth. They only point to it. I speak from presence, and as I speak, you may be able to join me in that state. Although every word that I use has a history, of course, and comes from the past, as all language does, the words that I speak to you now Are carriers of the high energy frequency of presence, quite apart from the meaning they convey as words. Silence is an even more potent carrier of presence. So when you listen to me speak, be aware of the silence between and underneath the words. Be aware of the gaps. To listen to the silence, wherever you are, is an easy and direct way of becoming present. Even if there's noise, There's always some silence underneath and in between the sounds. Listening to the silence immediately creates stillness inside you. Only the stillness in you can perceive the silence outside. And what is stillness other than presence, consciousness freed from thought forms? Here's the living realization of what we have been talking about. Don't get attached to any one word. You can substitute Christ for presence if that is more meaningful to you. Christ is your God essence or the self as it is sometimes called in the East. The only difference between Christ and presence is that Christ refers to your indwelling divinity regardless of whether you are conscious of it or not, whereas presence means your awakened divinity or God essence. Many misunderstandings and false beliefs about Christ will clear if you realize that there is no past or future in Christ. To say that Christ was or will be is a contradiction in terms. Jesus was. He was a man who lived two thousand years ago and realized divine presence, his true nature, and so he said, Before Abraham was, I am. He did not say, I already existed before Abraham was born. That would have meant that he was still within the dimension of time and form identity. The words I am, used in a sentence that starts in the past tense, indicate a radical shift, a discontinuity in the temporal dimension. It is a Zen-like statement of great profundity. Jesus attempted to convey directly, not through discursive thought, the meaning of presence, of self-realization. He had gone beyond the consciousness dimension governed by time into the realm of the timeless. The dimension of eternity had come into this world. And eternity, of course, does not mean endless time, but no time. Thus the man Jesus became Christ, a vehicle for pure consciousness. And what is God's self-definition in the Bible? Did God say, I have always been and I always will be? Of course not. That would have given reality to past and future. God said, I am that I am. No time here, just presence. The second coming of Christ is a transformation of human consciousness, a shift from time to presence, from thinking to pure consciousness, not the arrival of some man or woman. If Christ were to return tomorrow in some externalized form, what could he or she possibly say to you other than this? I am the truth. I am divine presence. I am eternal life. I am within you. I am here. I am now. Never personalize Christ. Don't make Christ into a form identity. Avatars, divine mothers, enlightened masters, the very few that are real, are not special as persons. Without a false self to uphold, defend and feed, they are more simple, more ordinary than the ordinary man or woman. Anyone with a strong ego would regard them as insignificant or, more likely, not see them at all. If you are drawn to an enlightened teacher, it is because there is already enough presence in you to recognize presence in another. There were many people who did not recognize Jesus or the Buddha, as there are and always have been many people who are drawn to false teachers. Egos are drawn to bigger egos. Darkness cannot recognize light. Only light can recognize light. So don't believe that the light is outside you or that it can only come through one particular form. If only your master is an incarnation of God, then who are you? Any kind of exclusivity is identification with form, and identification with form means ego, no matter how well disguised. Use the master's presence to reflect your own identity beyond name and form back to you, and to become more intensely present yourself you will soon realize that there is no mine or yours in presence. Presence is one. Group work can also be helpful for intensifying the light of your presence. A group of people coming together in a state of presence generates a collective energy field of great intensity. It not only raises the degree of presence of each member of the group but also helps to free the collective human consciousness from its current state of mind dominance. This will make the state of presence increasingly more accessible to individuals. However, unless at least one member of the group is already firmly established in it and thus can hold the energy frequency of that state, the egoic mind can easily reassert itself and sabotage the group's endeavors. Although group work is invaluable, it is not enough and you must not come to depend on it, nor must you come to depend on a teacher or a master, except during the transitional period when you are learning the meaning and practice of presence.